If you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 2. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the notes. This morning, I imagine we, we will be considering a, a difficult and challenging topic. You can see the title for this morning's message, A Faith That Does Not Save. Um, and yet, I, as, as, as strange a title as that might be, I think that's exactly what we see here at the end of chapter 2. It'll probably take us three or four weeks to work through the end of chapter 2 and Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, but I'd like to begin by reading John 2.23 to John 3.21. John 2.23 to 3.21. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man, the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
Let's pray. Lord God, as we study this challenging passage, I pray that you would give us insight and clarity that we might understand what the faith is that pleases you, that saves, that gives life, and what to make of these many in Jerusalem to whom the Lord Jesus did not entrust himself. Guard us from their error. Help us to press on to faith and life that is light, that we might come to know your Son in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. My way of introduction, let me make a couple statements for clarity. The gospel message is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done on the cross, and be saved. Plus or minus nothing. It's not faith plus do these things. It is believe. Cornelius believed the account of Peter, and while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit came upon him. More emphatically, John's gospel is written that we might believe. We've read this many times. Hopefully by the time we finish our study, you'll have this memorized. But John 20, 30 to 31, John is explicit on why he wrote. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe in that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. We've already seen in the prologue, why was John the Baptist sent? He came to bear witness that all might believe through him. And most emphatically, we have Jesus' own insistent and repeated word that, John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So John's gospel, our gospel message is clear. Faith and nothing but faith is required for salvation which is why the passage we encounter this morning should make us scratch our heads, should cause us to pause and say, what is going on here? It's significant. It's worth looking at and taking our time with. I don't know about you, but the first time I was reading through John and I got to the end of chapter 2, I went, wait a second, that can't be right. While he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. What on earth is going on? John says he wrote so that people might believe. Jesus insists that if you believe, you have life. And here, many believed in Jesus. And Jesus' response is strange. How are we to make sense of this? That, that is our goal this morning. I believe that these last three verses of chapter 2 are part of the greater narrative going into Nicodemus. I think the chapter division is poorly placed. I would have placed it in between 2, 22, and 23, but nobody asked me, so that's okay. Um, and I hope by the end of our time this morning, we'll have some clarity. But the, the first thing is to walk through the passage, not try to minimize the difficulty, Consider some explanations and then try to consider what I think is the truth. So we're just going to look at this in four points. The first two points, we're really just looking at these last three verses in chapter 2. I believe chapter 3 helps explain them. 
But we're really just looking at 2, 23 to 25. And we're looking at it in four points. The first two dealing with the text. The last two trying to make sense of it. So, first, many believed in Jesus' name. Many believed in Jesus' name. Now, this verse ties what we're seeing here to Jesus' time in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. It tells us when. When did this happen? When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. You'll remember that's where we just saw him when he cleansed the temple. The movement so far has been Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana, and then he and his mother and his brothers go up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, a week-long festival. And while he's there, he cleanses the temple, and the Jews demand a sign, and he says, no sign will be given to you except destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. We now learn that what's happening here happens around this. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a week or so, and in that time, many believed when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, when they saw, your blank, the signs that he was doing. Which, of course, makes you go, what signs? Well, they're not specifically mentioned by John, which should not surprise us, because John, in that passage at the end of the gospel that I have frequently referenced, indicates many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's going to tell us, oh yeah, there are plenty of signs Jesus did. I didn't write down. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So some of those other signs took place. This is also indicates possibly some of the disingenuousness of the Jews asking for a sign. Remember, he cleansed the temple, and they refused to either amen it or condemn it. Jesus is indicting temple worship. He's indicting what they're doing. He drives them out. And the Jews don't say, how dare you? Nor do they say, amen, way to go, Jesus. They say, well, what, what, what sign do you do? Well, it's a little less ingenuous if Jesus is doing signs in and around Jerusalem at this time. <coughs> Excuse me. So the text says many believed. Many believed in his name. In his name. Now, part of the reason why this is difficult, why this passage is supposed to be jarring, I think John is intentionally writing in a way that's to make us scratch our heads, is that phrasing is word for word identical with chapter 1, verse 12. If you turn there, chapter 1, verse 12, 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Grammatically identical. You're blank here. They believed in his name as commended, as spoken well of. This is a good thing here in 112, right? This is positive. This is is good, great, in the prologue. They do what 112 says, at least grammatically. Our our escape here is not going to be, well, technically it's a different word. It'd be nice if that was the case. That's not the case. This is the same phrase. So, so that when you read this in chapter 2, the most natural thing you'd expect would be something like, many believed in his name, Jesus on his part gave them the right or the authority to become children of God, which is what you see here. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This same phrase is used a little later in chapter 3. Go back to 3 and look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
So at least grammatically, these people are doing exactly what is commended in the prologue and exactly what is commended a little later in the chapter. And John knows this. He knows what he's written. He knows what he's going to write. And so the first thing i got to point out is the, the cognitive dissonance, the whoa, what, is, is real. He doesn't switch up his wording. He doesn't swap words out to indicate this is something different. And so we've got to try to figure out how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? Many believed in his name. Next, how does Jesus respond to them? And this is really the conundrum. Up to this point, there is no real problem. It's Jesus' response. Let's be fuddling. Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Now, literally, there's a play on words here in Greek. They believed him, believed in his name. And the blank here is Jesus did not believe himself to them. The pistueo, pistis, faith, stem, is used. So they believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe himself to them. Now, it does mean in trust. That's how it's used in, in Luke 8.13. No, not Luke 8.13. Luke, Luke 16.11. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? But there's definitely a play on words here going on. They believed in him. He didn't believe himself to them. That's the idea. Which is, which is the jarring response. One twelve would expect us that if they've believed in his name... They get the right to become children of God. 3.18, they're not going to perish. But here, Jesus does not give himself to them. He does not open himself to them. Now, John knows this is unexpected, and he gives us some reasons. Because he knew all people. The contrast here is between the people who saw things. They saw signs, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows things. He knew all people. So the most immediate implicit answer is this. There's something in these people that Jesus knows about that causes him not to respond with a self-disclosure, with not entrusting himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. The information Jesus had, in other words, was not something he derived carefully from interviewing people, from witnesses, from a network of sources, but rather an indication of his deity, for he himself knew what was in man. Because Jesus was God in the flesh, Jesus knew what was going on in the inner person. And something that Jesus knew going on in them was the cause of him not entrusting himself to them. That that type of knowledge is a knowledge reserved only for God. Remember 1 Samuel 16, 7. And Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king. And he's really impressed by David's older brothers. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Or Psalm 139.1, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So this type of knowledge of the inner man is a knowledge reserved for Yahweh, for God. So as far as we've come, we, we, we get the statement, they believed in his name, which just before and just after is a good thing. And here, Jesus' response to them is to withhold himself, not to trust them. You can almost view it as they have untrustworthy faith. And the first reason we're given is Jesus is aware of what's going on inside of them, and that knowledge he has is not due to verbal reports 
to witnesses, but due to his deity. That's the problem. That's what what the text presents. Now, there's a couple ways we can try to work through this problem, this difficulty. The first would be to say John's a poor writer and he's contradicting himself. Now, that's not an option for us. It is an option for many more liberal commentators. But I'd suggest to you, you've got to be a particularly bad writer to, to use the exact phrase you used less than a chapter before and less than a chapter ahead and say something different with it. You'd have to not just think John's a bad writer. You'd have to think he's a very bad writer. That, that can't be what's going on. Um, I, I think, in fact, the fact that such close references are there is what's meant to indicate this is intentional. John is intentionally causing us to slow down, scratch our heads, think carefully. The second option we could have is to say, well, perhaps even though Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them, they're still saved. Perhaps this is some imperfection in their discipleship. They they are saved. I mean, after all, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Doesn't have to mean they're not saved. It does seem a little odd. Perhaps they're still saved and everything's good. Well, the problem with that option is that possibly could fly here, but it won't fly in a couple other passages in John. So here's your blank for this point. John's gospel, I believe, reveals degrees or types of faith. And that's something he does multiple times. Already, we've seen in the positive sense, Nathaniel under the fig tree. Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. He confesses, you are the, Messiah, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus says to him, did you believe? Because I said, I saw you under the fig tree. But then what happens 11 verses later at the wedding at Cana? His disciples beheld his glory and they believed. So Nathaniel, here's your blank, believed and then believed again. And, and we see that already at the, in the encounter in, um, in the temple in chapter 2. What does it say here in 2.22? Um, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said and they believed. But this is, of course, after they believed. So it's to be greater faith. So positively, John's got, and I can show you other examples, positive examples of more faith. People believing and then believing more still. A greater degree, a greater faith. That's there. But the negative example, turn to chapter 8. It's conceptually possible to argue that these people that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to are still saved, if that's all we had. John 8 eliminates that as an option. John 8 eliminates that as an option. To quote T.A. Carson, in John's gospel, there's faith and there's faith. We are saved by faith alone, but John wants to make it clear there's more than one thing we might rightly call faith, and they're not all the same. And if that's right, if what I'm saying is right, then we want to pay close attention and take notes that what we have as faith is what John's talking about. So it's not any addition to faith, but rather degrees or types. So look at John 8, starting in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Really clear. Who is he talking to? The Jews who had believed in him. And he said to them, if you abide in my word, (coughs) you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him. We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. I added that last bit in, just reminding you what was said. 
It gets worse. These Jews who had believed in him, Jesus accuses of trying to kill him. It gets way worse. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. What's Jesus getting at? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came of, not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. John wants us to get there's faith and there's faith. John wants us to understand there is something we can call faith, but you can still be a son of the devil trying to kill the son of God. That, that's, you can't miss that. And once that happens then, now it raises the question, what type or quality or degree of faith is John looking for that all these wonderful promises are attached to? And I think that's the point of what we're going into with chapter 3. Let me show you one other example. There are a couple more, but I'll show you one other. Go to John 12. And we got time. Go to John 12. This is the close, closing section of John's public ministry of Jesus. This is the, the end of Jesus traveling about. From here on out, starting in 13, it's the upper room discourse. He's just ministering to the 12. And then the 11, as Judas departs. And then in 17, he goes and he prays. He's arrested. We have the passion. And so 12 closes this section out. You see it at 1236, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now there's another interesting case. Many, even if the disciples believed, but they're ashamed. And they won't say anything. And then he tells us why they're ashamed. Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now that by itself is not conclusive. But turn to chapter 5 where John, what John's doing here is quoting Jesus from chapter 5. And in John 5.44, Jesus says this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Now, that's a rhetorical question whose answer is obvious. You can't. While you seek the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, Jesus says, how can you believe? And in chapter 12, 
with these secret believers who he then tells us they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. At best, there's a question mark over this group. We'll see. We'll see. So in John's gospel, there are degrees or types of faith. Your blanks. The disciples believed and believed again. B, Jews who believed in Jesus remained sons of Satan. And some believed secretly, loving the praise of man. And at this point, I'll remind you that in the other gospels and in other epistles, this notion is, is shown. You remember in James, and James talks about dead faith and even the demons believe. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, in our study of Luke, describes the, the seed that fell on the rocky soil this way. He says, those on the rocky soil, Luke 8.13, are those when they hear, receive the word with joy. They have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So this isn't unique to John. But I want to show you that within John, even though John is the gospel of belief, and you've got to believe, and you've got to have faith. And let me pause and say, when I say belief and then faith, I'm using them interchangeably. In English, you can't take... Um, well, you can't because it believed, but you can't take faith and turn it into a verb. He faithed him. In, in, in Greek, pistis and pistueo, believe, belief, faith, faithing, are, are the, the root that's used. They're interchangeable. So I'm using believe and faith interchangeably. Justification by faith, justification by belief, same thing. Um, so John's gospel has degrees or types of faith. And another hint might be, if you turn, as we work our way back to, th- to 2 and 3, go to, the, go to chapter 4. John's gospel has examples of people coming to faith by signs and miracles. Nathaniel is an example of one. But repeatedly in John's gospel, faith that comes from a sign or a miracle, and specifically faith that demands signs and miracles, is always viewed with a certain level of incredulousness, a certain amount of, we'll see. Look at uh, 4... Uh, 48. 4.48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That, that's not praise. At best, that's disappointment. Right? And so a faith that starts from seeing signs and miracles, at best, is, we'll see. So how do we deal with this then? We've got prom. I mean, we got clear declarations. To those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They believed in his name. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. How, how do we make sense of this? Well, I think chapter 3 in the Nicodemus encounter is how. One of the reasons why I think this is a terrible chapter break is I think this is the introduction to the Nicodemus encounter. For starters... My ESV has now in 3.1. It's just the Greek word and or but. So, so notice the connection. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, We know your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. So what do you know? Nicodemus has seen some signs. Nicodemus has seen some signs, and he's convinced Jesus is from God. What I'm suggesting to you is that that verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2 are the introduction, the overview of the Nicodemus encounter. And then Nicodemus is our example. If you're scratching your head at the end of chapter 2, and I think you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to go, whoa, what gives, John? 
I think as we walk through the Nicodemus encounter, it'll make sense why Nicodemus clearly believes some things about Jesus. He says as much, you're from God. He believes that. There's something Nicodemus has, having seen Jesus' signs you could call faith. And yet, Nicodemus at this point is not a believer. He becomes one. He shows up three times in John's gospel. Here, in chapter 7, where he argues with some of the Pharisees in Jesus' defense. Hey, does our law judge a man without hearing him? And they tell him to get lost. Are you from Galilee too? And then, in chapter 19, he goes public in daylight, taking Jesus' body with Joseph of Arimathea and burying him. He becomes a visible disciple. We know that. But here, John's not a believer. I mean, John's not a believer. Nicodemus is not a believer. We know that because look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, chapter 3, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. Let there be no question at this point, at this time, in this place, Nicodemus does not believe Jesus. Jesus says so. Take it on his word. And so we see how within this one man there can be something we can call faith and something we can call unbelief. And so in the coming weeks as we work through this, we should hope, and I hope I've got you interested so that we're looking at what is it about Nicodemus's faith that's insufficient? Here's your blank. Nicodemus's insufficient faith. And in our closing time, before we get to our time of communion, um, I want to give you five qualities that we'll look at more carefully in the next coming weeks of Nicodemus's insufficient faith. Uh, let, let me say a couple things. Whereas James can talk about dead faith, and that sounds like a bad thing, what the people are doing here at the end of chapter 2 I don't think is bad. It's just not enough. It's not, they're, they're paying attention. I mean, look at Nicodemus's opening confession. This man is a Pharisee, a teacher or the teacher in Israel. He comes to Jesus, who's not an ordained rabbi, and he calls him rabbi. And he acknowledges freely, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. As far as it goes, that's great. That's orthodox. It's good. And Jesus' whole point in pushing back against Nicodemus is that that's not nearly far enough, Nicodemus. That's not nearly far enough. But I don't think there's anything bad about this confession. It's just insufficient. And so Nicodemus shows us then how he walks us through, gives us an example to show us why what we just read in 2.23 to 25 makes sense. So despite Nicodemus' belief that Jesus is from God, Jesus is a miracle worker, Jesus is using the miracle power of God, Jesus is a teacher, we see the five following things about Nicodemus' insufficient faith. The, the exchange with Jesus has a pattern. Nicodemus speaks, and Jesus responds with a truly, truly statement. Three times. There's an implied question of Nicodemus. At the beginning, Rabbi, we know your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And I think the implied question is something like, who are you? I'm here to try to figure out who you are. And Jesus makes these stern, solemn statements. Truly, truly. 
And the first one we see in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the first insufficiency of Nicodemus' faith is he was not born again. He had not experienced the inward change of heart, circumcision of heart, to use the category of Deuteronomy 30. Although here I think Jesus is using the categories of Ezekiel 36. I'll wash you with clean water. Nicodemus, I think, has too high of an estimation of himself when he comes to Jesus. I think that's part of what Jesus is doing here. Nicodemus, you're blind. Second, he did not recognize his powerless condition. When he trips over that first answer of Jesus, he says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And we'll look at this probably next week. Seven and eight makes it clear. You and I have as much involvement in our spiritual birth as we do in our natural birth, which is to say none. The wind, no, get this. What is spirit birth like? The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit decides who he's going to birth. You don't, just because you feel the wind blowing by on your cheek, you don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's been. That's what the spiritual birth is like. In other words, Nicodemus, you're, you're impotent in this regard. You're helpless in this regard. You have too high an op- of an opinion of your own ability, of your own sight, of your own, of your own judgment. And Nicodemus never, as we can see, accepts this, comes to grips with this. He's still saying, what, how can this be? This, this is news to him. And so whatever's going on with his faith, he's not born again, and he does not recognize his powerless condition. Now, presumably he does come to recognize his powerless condition by the time he goes publicly to be a disciple of Jesus. Point C, he did not understand the scriptures he taught. In Jesus' sharpest rebuke to Nicodemus in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things. Making it clear that all of Jesus' born-again language is Old Testament. Nicodemus ought to track. Nicodemus, if he's a teacher in Israel, of all people, surely ought to be following with him. This is a, there's a rebuke tied up in here. You're the teacher of Israel and you're not following with me, Nicodemus? And we'll see, we'll see. I believe this is referencing Ezekiel 36. This is frightening. Here's a teacher in Israel, a rabbi, a Pharisee, not understanding the Bible he's teaching. Point D, we saw this already. He did not receive or believe Jesus' testimony. So even while he believed Jesus was from God, Jesus was a teacher from God, Jesus was a miracle worker from God, Jesus says plainly, you don't believe what I'm saying, you don't receive what I'm saying. It's right there in verse 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness of what we have seen. There might be some subtle teasing here. Nicodemus shows up a little pompous, we know. Here, Jesus, well, we know a thing or two ourselves, we do. We know what we have seen. And you, and the plurals, it's, by the way, you here is plural. You all, speaking to the group behind him. Remember, many believed that Jesus didn't entrust himself to. 
So now Jesus isn't just responding to Nicodemus. He's responding to Nicodemus and a whole group of people behind him. We speak of what we have seen, but you all, hopefully your Bible is a footnote to the effect that that's plural, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Which means even as he's calling Jesus a teacher coming from God, he's not believing and receiving the teaching from this teacher. And Jesus goes on to reveal some of the crucial details of his identity. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. That is the son of man. Jesus is not just I'm from God. I'm from heaven. I'm from heaven. And secondly, he came from heaven to die to atone for sin. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the best mark for Nicodemus at this point is he shuts up. Up to this point, every time Jesus teaches, he's going, well, well, what? How does that work? What? And given that we know where he ends up, he ends up a disciple. Perhaps at this point, his conscience is pricked. Perhaps at this point, the rebuke is stung enough that he's, he shuts up. And what Jesus does, starting in verse 16, is unpack for him gospel truth. So it's, it's hopeful. I mean, Nicodemus starts out doing a lot of talking, and midway through this thing, he's, he's, out, he's out of the narrative. He's gone. Jesus is talking. Until we get to um, the conclusion, um, we can't be certain how much of this is Jesus talking and how much of this is John, the gospel writer, writing, because, of course, John didn't write at times with red ink and times with black ink. Interpreters, translations have to make their best guesses. I'm guessing if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, your red letters go all the way through 21. It's possible Jesus is speaking all the way to 21. Possible. But given that this section has an introduction, at the end of chapter 2, to me, 19 through 21 of chapter 3 really looks like a closing section. It, It makes no huge difference. I would guess John, the gospel writer, is now writing... This is the judgment, or this is the conclusion. This is the summary to sum up what we've seen. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus again? By night. I don't think that's accidental. It's actually repeated again in 19 when he's brought up and Nicodemus, the one who'd come by night. No, I think if we take the conclusion, this means then that Nicodemus still loved the darkness rather than the light. He still loved his evil deeds rather than righteousness. And so even though in some sense he believes, he doesn't believe enough. It's a start. And Jesus gives him more truth. But Nicodemus' faith is insufficient. And even while you can call him, in some sense, a believer, Jesus calls him plainly a non-believer. You don't believe. And I think as we go through the rest of John's gospel, he'll give us more marks of the hallmarks of genuine faith, authentic faith. Again, nothing but faith saves. It's not faith plus anything else. But I believe John's gospel makes it clear there are things we can call faith that don't profit us. There are things... He can call faith that leaves you a son of the devil wanting to kill Jesus. And so as we go through Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, 
rather than viewing him as this hopeful. I've heard this before. Nicodemus shows up, and the rest of the Pharisees don't like Jesus, but he's hopeful. Could this be the Messiah? And he shows up, and no, Jesus, you're not a believer. You're not a receiver. Nicodemus shows up claiming to speak for some people, and partway through his encounter with Jesus, Jesus starts responding to him as if he is a representative for people, saying, you all, you all, you all. And even though we know where Nicodemus's plot line ends in faith and discipleship, here, that summary statement summarizes him, and it summarizes the rest of those. So we learn those things about faith. I'd like to close with a word of prayer as we transition to our time of communion this time. Um, let, me, let me pray. Lord, we, we pray, we ask that you would work in us genuine faith that saves. We, we ask that you would uh, work the birth in our hearts that only you can work. We ask that you would um, help us to see our desperate estate apart from you that we would not rely on our own confidence, we would not rely on our own wisdom, we would depend on you. We, we ask that we would receive and believe all of the testimony of Jesus, and not just certain things about him, but all that he has to say, all that he is, all that he has done. We pray that you would cause us to hate the darkness, to love the light, to come to the light, that we might reveal that our works have been brought forth in you. In Jesus' name, amen.